Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone, Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we have a real treat. We're going to uh, dive deep into one of the best strategies you can do to optimize your health, at least in my humble opinion, and that of many others, including our guest, Dr. Gabriel Lyons, who is a physician like myself, and we're both DOs and actually graduated from, well, this not the identical same school, but a sister school, sister Midwestern, school. Midwestern University. <laughs> yes. I went to Chicago and before it was called Midwestern University and she went to Arizona. So she has uh, really spent a good portion of her time focusing on how to increase strength and muscle mass, which is rarely ever addressed. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't. So I was delighted to find out about her work and really wanted to engage in it because she's, this is what her primary focus is. And she's gotten really good at it. And she helps people implement this. So we're going to get some great pearls from her today. So welcome. And thank you for joining us today. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I, I really love what you said, this idea that nobody focuses on skeletal muscle. And I was, I was in the kitchen last night, we were making dinner. Um, and there's this idea that obesity is the thing to attack, right? We have a whole medicine component called obesity medicine. When reality, in reality, that's just secondary to impaired muscle, but we have nothing like muscle centric medicine, Mm -hmm. which would really be solution-based for obesity. Your listeners might not know this, but obesity, uh, Alzheimer's, diabetes, cardiovascular disease actually begin in skeletal muscle years before they become apparent. Yeah, that sounds odd, but th- there's good justification for that assertion. Yeah, um, and it's in the literature. So obesity, diabetes, these are diseases of skeletal muscle insulin resistance. Mm-hmm. But what's so shocking is that we have a whole, that every everyone is focused, especially the medical community, on attacking obesity as opposed to fixing the underlying problem, which is really augment, augmenting skeletal muscle and optimizing for muscle with nutrition primary and training secondary. Yeah. So, so why don't you take us a little bit on your journey and how you got into this focus? Because yeah. I just want to share a little bit of my story too, so we can get perspective and, and help people understand how easy it is to get confused. Because I've been interested in exercise for over 50 years, 53 mm. years. It's when I first started. And I continued that interest into medical school, but the focus was (laughs) in the sixties was on cardiovascular exercises, you know? So I did 40 years of long distance running and I got pretty decent at it. Not, not a national level class, but I could run a a mile under five minutes. I can run 10 miles under an hour and I did a 250 marathon. So I got decent at it, Mm. but I totally ignored muscle mass until maybe 10, 15 years ago. So you didn't, you got it early. I, <laughs> I, I went I down did. the wrong road. And even though it's cardiovascular healthy, I don't think you need it. I think you can get enough um, stimulation of your cardiovascular system with, with proper exercises. 
I think that there's benefit. So I don't think that you totally um, miss the mark. There's, it, there is importance in terms of cardiovascular activity for mitochondria biogenesis and mitochondria density, which I believe is extremely important when we think about fatigue and we think about overall cardiovascular health, but mm -hmm. people always focus on it as the primary and <laughs> in fact, it is, it, you know, it should be focused on more of an interface between yeah, the two. And when I travel, I'm sure when you travel too, if you go to the fitness center, you'll see 90% of the people in that fitness center in the hotel right. working on the cardio machines. <laughs> right. Virtually no one's on the weights. Uh, yes, that's true. And I think that there's a lot of fear and misunderstanding. You know, it's interesting. The perspective is that weightlifting is really just for bodybuilders and it couldn't be further from the truth. I think that the bodybuilders had it right early on and in medicine, when you think about skeletal muscle, which actually is the organ of longevity, it's the largest organ in the body. It makes up 40% of our body weight of our body mass. Um, it is really misunderstood as an endocrine organ as what it does. So I think the bodybuilders really had it right with training early on. And if we can meld together the interface of the perspective of weightlifting and make that synonymous with, you know, longevity, we're onto mm -hmm. something. Yeah, because uh, uh, anti-aging medicine is one of my passions and, or longevity medicine, mm -hmm. depending on which way you phrase it. But even in that community of physicians who are really committed to it, I mean, that's their full-time career yeah. and profession. They, most of them, Maybe they understand the importance of exercise, but from a practical, personal perspective, they don't understand what you just said there because they're not applying it personally. I, I agree been my with observation. That. That's been my observation. <laughs> I, I actually, I agree with you. Um, I, I couldn't agree with you more. There is a mistake that we make that muscle is really not targeted as the pinnacle. Right mm -hmm. now, it's the periphery. It's secondary to weight loss, it's secondary to all these other issues, but it actually should be the primary. It is what optimizes us for longevity. In fact, we know that the higher your muscle mass, the higher your survivability against all diseases. You know, I was just looking at the data for cancer cachexia. People may not realize this, but cancer cachexia kills one out of five cancer patients. And that's the loss of muscle mass. The loss of muscle mass kills these individuals. So you need a reserve. It's, it's, you know, I think we, everyone knows we've got a limited amount of carbohydrates reserve at the form yeah. of like most of it in the muscle mm -hmm. and obviously have a lot more fat, but the reserve of protein in case you have to go through this cachectic period or starvation for whatever reason, cancer being one of them, the only reserve you have is your muscle. And That's if you right. don't have enough, there's no, you're, you're just going to, you're going to pass away prematurely because there's no, no stores there. Yeah, um, that's right. Uh, skeletal muscle functions as an, our amino acid reserve. And exactly for what the reasons that you're saying is if an individual gets injured or if you're on bed rest, or if you are in a highly catabolic state or a highly inflammatory state or some insult to the body, it relies on skeletal muscle. You know, when I think about where this perspective came from for me, it was actually very personal. Um, you know, as we were speaking earlier, you know, my godmother, Liz Lipsky, I moved in with her when I was very young. Uh, I graduated high school early and uh, started learning about the importance of nutrition, which is something that we really do need to talk about in its 
relation mm-hmm. to skeletal muscle. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I then went to do my undergraduate in human nutrition, which is under Dr. Donald Lehman, who is a world leading protein researcher. Mm-hmm. And it really changed my perspective, his data. He was one of the original individuals that was looking at mTOR branched chain amino acids, these components that were very critical to muscle mass, you know, after that, after medical school and then residency, I did, I was still very interested in muscle. And that was really my primary focus as it relates to diseases of aging. Um, I then went to WashU in mm-hmm. St. Louis and I studied geriatrics and obesity medicine and nutritional sciences. And one of the studies that we were looking at is we were looking at the interface between obesity and brain function, Mm -hmm. because as individuals may know, geriatrics is the study of individuals over the age of 65, what that looks like for cognition, what that looks like for muscle mass, uh, typically thought of as sarcopenia. And this woman was in her late forties, early fifties. And I imaged her brain Mm-hmm. And her brain looked like an Alzheimer's brain. Oh. And it was at that moment that I realized we were failing individuals by focusing on obesity. Mm-hmm. That truly, if this individual had optimized for muscle, because we know muscle is your metabolic currency, it's really the regulator of glucose. It's, you know, for fatty acid oxidation, for strength, for all of these things, these metabolic currencies, muscle is the focal point. And the diseases that she was predisposed to have actually were starting in skeletal muscle. And by not addressing that, her trajectory of aging was apparent. And it was at that moment that I realized that muscle was the way to go. And that, that's actually yeah. where muscle centric. So let's, let's get into some of the specifics of why that's the case. Cause you said several times yeah. that the muscle is a metabolic regular and it is, Yeah. but help us understand why, you know, it's specifically to the aspect Certainly. of increasing the density and numbers of uh, glutamate, glu- glucose receptors on the muscle yeah. cell, the cell and, and radically lower the glucose spikes. Yeah. Skeletal muscle is your primary site for glucose disposal. The more muscle mass you That's have. A, that, that is, is such an astounding statement. Most <laughs> I know. Don't 80 some percent. It, it, say it a few times. So people say <laughs> 80 some it. percent. Uh, skeletal muscle is the primary site for glucose disposal. Individuals that are struggling with elevated blood sugar, elevated glucose, elevated triglycerides, skeletal muscle is your primary site for disposal and utilization of these um, nutrients, of these substrates. Having healthy skeletal muscle will manage that metabolic currency. You know, and it's, it's really interesting because as we age, that decreases, the health of muscle decreases as we age. And if we do not become extremely focused on stimulating muscle, number one, through diet, I, I think mm-hmm. the diet is most important because it is accessible to everybody. Mm-hmm. And then of course, new, you know, then resistance training, you know, and cross and kind of cross training. I do think cardiovascular mm-hmm. activity is very important, but muscle as the primary site of glucose disposal is so important. And this becomes impaired in states like diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, insulin resistance actually begins in skeletal muscle. So obviously it's better to start and to understand and become aware of this earlier in life rather than late. But I would like you to address the, uh, the concern, I guess, that I'm just too old. I missed the boat. I'm 70, 75, 80. 
and it's just too late for them. Yeah. It, well, first of all, it's never too late. And, you know, I think that we have to understand that there are a few components to skeletal muscle that are incredibly valuable. And again, it should be the focal point. Number one for metabolic currency. If you want to protect, pre prevent obesity, prevent as much as you can, the dysregulation that happens in Alzheimer's prevent these diseases of aging. It starts in skeletal muscle. Um, you know, sarcopenia, which I think that some of your older listeners are going to be very keen on is a decrease in muscle mass and function. Uh, strength is, is really important. And these tissue, this tissue in particular will decline as you age. If you do not take care of it. And one way people are thinking, well, how do I take care of skeletal muscle? Let's take it from a dietary perspective. Skeletal muscle requires dietary protein. And I think right now there's a lot of narrative between animal and plant and how much do I need and environmental things and does it cause cancer? There's a whole list of confusing factors where actually in the literature and the science, it's, it's very crystal clear as to the impact of high quality dietary protein and its essential nature on skeletal muscle. From a practical standpoint, what does that mean? Well, the body requires essential amino acids. It actually, you know, there's 20 amino acids, nine are essential. And in particular, skeletal muscle requires branch chain amino acids to be stimulated. People are like, well, what are branch chain amino acids? And that's leucine, isoleucine, and valine. What is so interesting about these essential amino acids is again, they are essential and they must be ingested. You must get them from the diet. What's even more fascinating is that as we age, we must get them in particular doses. Very practical pearl will be for an individual to get 30 to 50 grams of high quality dietary protein to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. This must happen and becomes so much more important as you age. Yeah. And that's, I suspect if it's a high quality program, uh, protein rather that, uh, that quantity of protein will have the minimum required amount of leucine to stimulate them. Exactly. About, about three grams is or exactly less two, two to three grams. Is what yeah. So 2.5 grams is in the literature. Um, 2.5 grams and above is necessary, or I shouldn't say necessary, but certainly more ideal when an individual is younger, they can get away with 1.8 grams of leucine wow. to stimulate tissue, which is why we see when individuals are young, of course, they have a different hormonal milieu. They have higher levels of anabolic hormones. They, um, you know, we've all seen the high schooler who's eating the Twinkie diet and somehow they're still, you know, jacked and tan. But um, so when you are younger, you actually, the body balances its ability for muscle growth and the muscle, you know, I have to say muscle turnover is happening all the time. It's mm -hmm. not an on off process. Mm -hmm. uh, turnover of protein happens throughout all tissues all the time. But when you are young, practically speaking, an individual could get away with 20 grams of protein. And if you are like my daughter, who's two and a half, a, a child could get away with, you know, five grams to 10 grams of protein per meal, you know, and do, ha do and have an anabolic effect to that tissue. And I stress anabolic effect, a muscle protein synthesis effect is because you do need to be able to stimulate and repair that tissue. When an individual is in their twenties, arguably they could get away with 1.8 grams of leucine, and that would equate to maybe 20 grams of protein. However, 
as individuals age and, or the more sedentary an individual is, I believe personally that sarcopenia begins in your thirties. It is considered a disease of aging, but I believe sarcopenia because of our sedentary nature begins decades earlier than we are realizing. And one way to help muscle tissue remain healthy is to hit that leucine threshold to stimulate. There's an mTOR process, which then goes through muscle protein synthesis. We've probably, a lot of us have heard of mTOR, which gets a bad rap. I'm happy to talk about that. And, um, hitting a minimum of 30 grams as you age is important. And, uh, that's a minimum. You're probably more optimal. The older you get to reach a 50 gram consumption of dietary protein. And people are like, well, what is that for every one uh, ounce of protein, high quality protein, there's seven grams of protein. Um, so seven times five ounces of a steak would be 35 grams. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So I th but I, th I think they're probably more accurate to give it by uh, a density arrangement. So how many grams of protein per kilogram of body weight or per pound of body weight? Yeah. Would and be that would be because, yeah. you, I mean, you've got the five foot, 110 pound woman versus a, you know, 230 pound, six yep. foot four male. They're going to have totally different levels. Well, their requirement would be really based on body weight. And I would recommend oh. one gram per pound ideal body weight. And then once you have that number, you break it down into, depending on how many meals you eat between 30 and 50 grams per feeding, you can of course go above that. Um, mm -hmm. the body does utilize and absorb all of it from a muscle protein perspective. It, it doesn't require more than that. I've heard your discussion with Dr. Lehman, who is an excellent protein expert about one of the concerns of protein ingestion. Yeah. And maybe some people watching this have those concerns is that uh, because we see this for people with chronic renal failure, of course, is that they limit their protein intake because the, the concern is that if you have too much protein, you're going to damage your kidneys. So you can, can you discuss that point? Um, it's uh, another, let's, let's take healthy kidneys. I think the majority of individuals have healthy kidney function mm -hmm. and actually protein intake has been shown to improve glomerular filtration rate not have a negative impact. The body should be capable to manage high quality protein mm -hmm. without an issue. Um, and there's been multiple meta-analysis with individuals with healthy kidneys in terms of protein consumption. Okay, it's, well, a, it's another cool. falsehood. And the same thing with osteoporosis, people will say, well, you don't want to eat too much protein because it's bad for your bones. Well, the reality is, is what do people think bones are made of? Bones are made of proteins. And well, in fact, many, many, yeah. many people would say calcium. <laughs> yes, they are made of calcium. They are made of calcium, but the, the requirement is through protein. Oh, I know. That's the matrix that holds yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, and that's another falsehood. It, it, you know, when I went through my geriatric training, it became so apparent that what we were seeing in clinic and what we were doing to protect aging individuals was so vastly different than what was out in the public sphere. And it's interesting, individuals can ride the wave of youth for only so long. Mm -hmm. And then what ultimately happens is, you know, as you age, you have to get good information because the, the wiggle room for mistakes and the wiggle, the wiggle room for actually executing important and correct information becomes less. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, so I want to add a highlight to the information on the 
protein requirement to build muscles. <laughs> to give an example, a personal example, a really good friend of mine who's incredibly bright and probably one of the smartest female biohackers I know was exercising like a banshee. And we're going to talk about specific details of exercise next or yeah. later, but she was doing the right things. She had absolutely a, an impeccable resistance training program. But she, she's like almost six, maybe five, 10, and, and was only consuming like 30 to 40 grams of protein a day. (laughs) That's crazy. And how old was she? So the question would be how old is she? Like 40, mid forties, I think. Okay. That's much, much too mature in age to be able to get away with that. Yeah, I know. And and it didn't work. So if I was finally able to convince her and encourage her, and now she's got the double, she's actually had hundred grams yesterday. So I was like, yeah, yay, real victory. So, yeah. but, but I'm, I'm only using it as an example to, to show that so many smart people just, there's this, I don't know what it is. Maybe you, you have a good insight on it. Is this a fear protein or yeah. you know, with this mTOR con- connection or, mm-hmm. or some other concern? Because I mean, even smart people don't get it. They, they think maybe it's a, it's a, you know, this, this myth of low calorie or calorie restriction is being yeah. associated with longevity. So they're just trying to get everything low. And so the biggest mistake, yes. the variables. it's the biggest mistake, you know, this longevity, this longevity argument, I think is ridiculous in general, because it, I think we need to be specific. If an individual is eating lower protein to increase longevity, then you know, what are we talking about? Are we talking about (laughs) six weeks longer? So basically you're on bed rest, you're crippled, you've broken a hip, you have sarcopenia completely wasted away, but you're going to live six weeks longer, but the last five years to 10 years of your life have been miserable. Or are you going to prioritize protein, prioritize skeletal muscle as this organ of longevity, which by the way, it also interfaces with the immune system. It is mm-hmm. our largest immunoregulatory organ that we have. Um, you know, the way in which an individual wants to age, it's not just about the length of time. It's about the quality of life. I would rather consume high quality protein, train and live six weeks less and be strong and be able to carry out my activities of daily living, then be totally crippled. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah. you know, the conversation of longevity, I think is very um, misunderstood when we think about dietary protein. And you, know, you asked an important question, why do I think that even really smart people miss this? Mm-hmm. I believe that, um, new, that protein in particular is a bit of the black sheep of the macronutrient family. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of emotion and a lot of narrative surrounding dietary protein. I will say that, you know, Dr. Donna Lehman has trained me for the last 20 years. We didn't see that in the beginning. It, it is just exponentially increased in forces since you started. It's what it's gotten worse. Oh, exponentially worse, exponentially more convoluted, and what becomes scary is that the information is so misleading and it's the one thing, it's the one nutrient that will really be able to save people's lives. It is the one, it is the pinnacle because it protects skeletal muscle. And yes, carbohydrates have a protein sparing effect. And yes, you can do a ketogenic diet and there may be protein sparing effects. But the question I would ask is why? We know we need to prioritize protein because we have to optimize skeletal muscle. 
it is important for neurotransmitters. It is important for immune system. It is important for regulation of, you know, for mucin from, you know, gut lining. It is important for all things in the body, uh, hands down. And it's essential. We yeah. must ingest it. And yes. our body becomes resistant. You know, skeletal muscle goes through this process of anabolic resistance, which when, as we age, the efficiency muscle is also a nutrient sensing organ. It's efficiency to utilize and sense protein decreases as we age. Okay. No question. So just another viewpoint on essential uh, to, so some people can understand from a different perspective is that means your body can't make it. That's right. <laughs> so if you get, you know, and there's some confusion, especially when it comes to the fatty acids, which I'd like to discuss if we have a, some time to get there. But it, it, what I'd like to go over now is the timing of this thing, because I think one of the concerns for, or the justifications for lowering the protein would be this calorie restriction. But I think you could avoid, still gain essentially all the benefits of calorie restriction if you implement something that's known as intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating. Absolutely. So, so I, I've, I've come to the conclusion that it's best to fast for anywhere from 16 to 20 hours, 16 to 18 is probably the sweet spot mm-hmm. before uh, a day, every day. And then you're going to get virtually all the same benefits as calorie restriction with none of the downsides. And I'm just curious as to what your experience has been with respect to perhaps having your largest workout, like still in the fasting phase, we're having eaten yeah. for 16, 18 hours and then doing it and then further decreasing the carbohydrate load in the muscle, because obviously it's using sugar to, to work. And then you get massive additional benefits of autophagy. I, I think that there's a couple of important points here that I, I think are valuable Number one, time-restricted feeding or intermittent fasting is a way to effectively reduce calories. I think that that is important. In addition- You don't have have to reduce calories. You can still eat as many calories as you want as long as it's in in that window. Um, I actually believe that, um, I think that we may have different perspectives on this. I believe that calories do matter. I believe- I'm not saying they don't, but I'm just saying you don't have to limit the calories. Well, it depends on, certainly depends on what an individual's goal is. If it yeah, is yeah, like yeah. your, you know, if it is like your friend who's looking to, you know, optimize skeletal muscle, then a 10 to 15% increase in calorie, you know, from above 100%. baseline into a surplus would be yeah. beneficial. Um, training fasted, again, this all depends on your goals. Training mm-hmm. fasted, you know, it really is about a calorie consumption in a 24 hour period. One of the things I do think is very interesting that we're starting to see some of the uh, work out of uh, Pedersen's lab, who is in Copenhagen, the muscle as it contracts releases myokines mm-hmm. and everybody has heard about cytokines. Well, myokines release from contracting skeletal muscle, whether it is marathon running or resistance exercise actually plays a role in lipolysis which is Mm -hmm. the breakdown of fat and also the, a role in glucose utilization. So above and beyond just the exercise output from an energy standpoint, also there's another layer here looking at skeletal muscle as an organ system, the way in which it interfaces with other uh, tissues in the body. So I think that that is very interesting. This training in a low glycogen state um, for the increase of some of these myokines is 
Very, very, very interesting. There's another part that I think is beneficial. Do you, do you yeah. recommend it? Do you recommend it? Um, it depends, you know, it really depends on what an individual's, uh, training program is for me personally. I do. Mm-hmm. I think that it can be beneficial. Uh, I, I do believe that it can be beneficial. Again, if you're, if you're healthy in, in longevity is your goal and you're not really addressing some other issues, yeah. it seems to me it's no brainer. I mean, it seems that would be the, the really powerful strategy at no cost. Um, yes, there it, it definitely can be beneficial depending on what an individual's goal is. Certainly. Um, you know, the other aspect is when we think about skeletal muscle, you brought up something that I think is important. This idea of fasting, and there are two main ways to stimulate muscle tissue. And if you are going to fast, you better be training because Mm -hmm. when you do resistance exercise, you do stimulate that tissue. You do stimulate skeletal muscle. And again, as we age, it becomes really, really important to maintain because when you're 70, can you put on muscle? Yes. Is it difficult? Yes. <laughs> and we should talk about timing. You bring up something else. There's in the bodybuilding fitness world, feeding protein after training, no one seems to care about it. Everyone says it's in a 24 hour window in a geriatric population. We know that when blood flow post-training blood flow is optimized, we know that adding in a protein meal right after training, you know, within a period of time after training is extremely beneficial. And carbs too, right? You can add, absolutely. You know, I'm not an anti-carb individual. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. but- You're not going to gain muscle mass with low carb. (laughs) But, you know, this idea you do, you know, to gain muscle mass, you do need calories, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and protein and carbohydrates play a different role post-training, whether one is for glycogen repletion versus muscle protein synthesis or muscle repair, both, both in which are are very, very valuable and easy strategies. Um, and again, when you go out into the fitness world and and what I'm really trying to do is merge muscle, muscle centric medicine with more of the mainstream, right? We have to move beyond skeletal muscle as this fringe fitness situation and really as a focal point. And these are easy strategies that individuals can do by um, just changing their nutrition to really help protect that tissue. Well, let's transition over to the the exercises because I think that's really where the rubber meets the road. And and as you get older, it's just not... It's not maybe even an exercise program. It's just doing the daily activities of living. And I can think of both my parents who both died from sarcopenia, frailty. That's really impactful. Um, Yeah, which is a real motivation for me to continue with. So you've seen it. You've seen it. I've seen it real time. Yeah. Yeah. In my dad's case, he just sat down all the time. And the majority of his time, he would sit down watching TV and he just stopped. And he, he eventually lost the ability to stand up without assistance. Isn't that, isn't that wild? How that happens? It's insane. It's absolutely insane. And my mother wasn't intentional, but she got a knee pain that it was just never able to figure out. And it just wound up eventually putting her in a walker. So once you get into the walker phase, if you can't even walk, it's downhill from there and you're you're radically accelerating the the path. And can I ask you a question? Yeah. Do you think there was a way that that could have been prevented? With my dad, sure. Just stop getting out. Just get out of the chair. Don't sit down all day. You can't it, sit down. Expect it's to be very out. insidious, isn't it? It's yeah. very insidious. The nature in which we, you know, and I believe that this insidious nature of changing training 
you know, happens when we start to have more responsibilities. It's interesting. You hit 40 or you're running a business, you're entrepreneurial, or you're running a family. People tend to make the choice not to train and it's easy, right? Because it's something, well, I just need that extra hour to work, or I just need the extra time to do something else. And that, that insidious nature of those daily choices really add up. And listen, um, aging is a highly, it can be highly catabolic. There's this immunosenescence that happens. The body doesn't regulate the way that it used to, um, but moving and contracting skeletal muscle is the best defense that we have. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So most of the people, I would say the majority of people uh, visit our site are over 50 and many people are over 70 or 80. So, and it's particularly useful that you have specific training in geriatric medicine. So I'd like to review some of the, re your recommendations and like yeah. start into it and, and maybe even address the issue of how much muscle mass you can gain. You mentioned earlier, that it's difficult for people to gain muscle mass after a certain age, but I can t tell you personal experience uh, in the last year at the age of 67, I've gained 25 pounds of muscle mass, 25. Pounds. So that's incredible. That's probably the max that an individual yeah. could gain. That's, that's yeah. really at an elite kind of high optimal level. <laughs> Most you guys all listening the listener, the single listener, you must set your expectation lower than, than but that. You can, that, do, is, that you is can do it. Yeah. And, and a big part of it is that I totally failed miserably in understanding what you mentioned earlier about the protein. I had this fear of mTOR activation and cancer and all these things, but it took me many, many years to get over that. And once I finally did and bumped up my protein to a high enough level, uh, it, it worked. And, it's, and I did it with carbs and, and strength training, of course. Yeah. So and if you so don't I'm mind, I would, yeah, go ahead. if you don't mind, I'd, I'd love to address in just a minute, the concept of mTOR, which sure, is mechanistic ahead. target of rapamycin, and it's in every tissue. People don't understand mTOR is in every single tissue and it responds to different stimuli. And if you are out there and you are listening and you hear uh, protein causes cancer, that is not true. Cancer is a disease of the genome. When you upregulate a system, that doesn't mean that that causes a disease of the genome. mTOR is necessary for muscle protein synthesis. You stimulate it when you eat uh, dietary protein, you stimulate it when you do exercise. These are not bad things in the liver and the pancreas. mTOR is exquisitely sensitive to other things like insulin and carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. So the idea that eating protein, because it stimulates mTOR in skeletal muscle causes cancer is totally, um, well, makes no sense to me. I think the confusion, I'll tell you why it might make sense is to, and where the confusion resolves results from most likely is a timing issue, which we talked about earlier. See, most people, 90% of people are eating more than 12 hours a day, 12 hours a day. So if they're continually eating throughout the day, they're constantly smacking on mTOR. Yes. So it's being continuously stimulated the entire day. Whereas opposed to if you restrict your eating window and you have a pulsatile stimulation, maybe twice a day, then it's a non-issue and it's only beneficial. I think that's a, I think that's a very good strategy. And you do bring, bring up a good point. A continuous stimulation of mTOR is not a good thing. And again, um, by restricting that feeding window and actually not feeding the whole time, then, mm -hmm. then that, that does, that is, that does make sense, but yeah, because the devil's in the details. I mean, yes, I, I couldn't agree with you more on the protein recommendations, but yeah. if you're eating it all day long, that could result in a problem. So you've got to get the whole package together. I think that there is some real benefit to doing it in that strategy. 
I, I agree with you in that. Okay. So, um, but I did just want to just clear that up because the idea that oh, no. cause cancer, because listen, you could stimulate mTOR in a vegetarian diet as well. Easily. It is 100%. about eating. And 100%. that's where some people, you know, kind of seem to have made it into something else, which again, I think goes back to this anti-protein narrative. So I'm really curious as to what you'd recommend for a program or strategy or yeah. protocol to follow First, and maybe break it down by decades or so, and uh, yeah. so, so how people would start to engage. I mean, you've, we've given them a lot of information now to excite them about engaging in a strategy to increase their muscle mass. Yeah. So how well, would, the first how, thing, how, yeah. So the first thing, just to recap, is a dietary protein is essential, especially as you age. Hitting one gram per pound ideal body weight is really important, and that should be broken down into thirty to fifty grams per meal. And it really is based on body weight. It is not based on sex. That is important. And if you are aging, eating protein after you work out is fantastic. Now, when it comes and, and, to- Excuse me, let me just ask a point of clarification there. You're basing that on body weight, but you know the average person is, we've got almost 50% of the country- Ideal body weight, piece. ideal body weight. Ideal body weight or lean body mass. So lean body mass would be a great strategy, but uh, people don't know their lean body mass. You know how to calculate it, okay. It's not, it's not realistic. It's not realistic. So, you know, when I, like with my patients, I try to be very pragmatic and practical about what is possible for execution. Um, you know, and then when we think about programming, I don't actually program. I have people on my team that program exercises for um, patients. I think that when, and I'll, I'll give you some basic recommendations for hypertrophy, which I think is very valuable. When it comes to executing and following a game plan for training to optimize muscle, I think it becomes very important to get with a coach or an individual that this mm -hmm. is what they do. They train your, the way in which you do cyclical training volume is very important and volume is really, um, you know, exactly what it sounds like the amount of repetitions and, you know, it's all cumulative in terms of weight repetition. Um, that is what we have seen in the literature. Volume is really important when you are, um, new, it is much easier to stimulate muscle tissue. So if you are an untrained individual, you could get away with 10 sets per week. If you are just starting out. And again, I preface this by saying, I don't actually develop training programs for individuals. I think doing this in person with a professional trainer is really where you're going to get your benefit because they can watch you. They mm -hmm. can determine what moves you need to do. I or, will or say how to modify your form because it's so yeah. important. You get injured. You don't want to get injured. You don't want to get injured because injury really sets individuals back. Um, and there are certain groups of people that may have a predisposition to get injured. For example, you know, individuals with, with hypothyroidism, I see that they have uh, poor tissue turnover. They get kind of joint pain and it, it, the recovery tends to be a bit of an issue. So there's, you know, getting with someone who knows what they're doing is really important. That being said, the current recommendation is very low for exercise. Um, and when I say very low, it's 150 minutes per week. That could be 30 minutes, uh, five days a week of exercise. Now, again, this is what I believe is deeply underserving the community just like protein, right? So protein recommendation, according to the RDA is 0.8 grams per kilogram. We've uh, totally missed the mark on that recent, you know, the pro age study would argue that we need uh, roughly which double. Is, 
which is which is 0.4 less than half of your current 0.4 grams per right. pound so the idea that you're going to get 150 minutes of exercise and you're going to do and make massive impact on your body is probably not true um you know before we kind of go into some of the sets and recommendations and things there's a a, a randomized control trial called the drew trial mm -hmm. and this was um this was a dose related exercise for postmenopausal women. And it looked at aerobic dosing of exercise to decrease white blood cells, which uh, was really interesting. It was actually looking at the interface between skeletal muscle and the immune system. And I, I talk about this because the amount of exercise that they used, they broke it up into three groups. And one was 50% below the recommendation at the recommendation and 150% uh, above the recommendation for exercise. And what they found was, and I bring this up because we, while we train for hypertrophy, what the other unintended aspects of this, it does is it actually affects the immune system, you know, individuals with autoimmunity, just individuals with low levels of chronic inflammation can be impacted through training. What they found was that those individuals that did 50% less didn't have any impact on their white blood cells. So you don't want an elevated level of white blood cells. You know, it's a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. It's perhaps related to type two diabetes. You see it more in, but what they did find is that there was a dose dependent aerobic activity that actually made an impact. I mean, there was lots of problems with the study, but that made an impact on the immune system. Now I say that because when you hear this recommendation of 150 minutes, people will go, well, I'm not going to start with that. And I would say that's probably the bare minimum that anybody should do, not the optimal, but the bare minimum. And, um, you know, it's supposed to be moderate intensity exercise. And that could be 30 minutes of moderate intensity exercise five days a week is, is likely not going to be enough. Yeah. Yeah, so I want to address the issue of cardio versus the resistance training. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Doug McGuff, who's a yeah, big promoter sure. of super slow. And I've interviewed him, gosh, maybe 10 years ago now. But he, he, he went over in great detail how you can use resistance training essentially to emulate or almost give, get identical cardiovascular benefits. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Um, again, I, I think that when I think about exercise, there's the aerobic activity, which everyone has been doing forever. And it is really outweighed, you know, even yourself is really out outweighed what we think of as in terms of importance for fitness. I do think that it's valuable. I do think adding it in a couple of days a week, whether it's three or four. Okay. So you're, you're a believer in it. Then. I am. I am. Okay. I think that there is a benefit. Um, and it could be three days a week. I do think that you do need to do aerobic training for, um, cardiovascular health. I also think it's important for mitochondria density. Mm -hmm. And I understand that there may be other ways to do it. If, you know, Doug McGuff was saying in a different way, I can appreciate that. But my perspective, while I, I say it is about cardiovascular, I'm very interested in the interface of um, skeletal muscle with these myokines and the rest of the body. And that requires a particular stimulus. Yeah, and Doug, Doug, stimulus was really big in, Doug was really big in the myokines. Too. Okay. So I believe that this requires a particular stimulus. And I think that I, I wouldn't shortchange that. I believe that while we think of exercise as healthy, 
I believe that that is the wrong way to think about exercise. I think it is a non-negotiable standard and we are designed to move. And the amount of time we spend sitting, I understand this idea of, of doing very short bursts of exercise and then being sedentary. We weren't designed for that. Mm -hmm. And that is one reason why I believe in cardiovascular activity. We were designed to move and we need to really shift that as that's like the baseline. So yes, I believe three days a week, um, three to even four days a week of cardiovascular activity. It can be anything that an individual wants. We know that the more they, the higher the intensity, you know, over 70% of a VO2 max, you begin to earn more calories through carbohydrates. You actually can increase your carbohydrate intake if you want to. Don't think that's a great strategy, but it's something that an individual could do. I, I do believe that, um, you know, 30 minutes, even if it's 30 to 40 minutes, three to four times a week would be fantastic for someone. Now, the other aspect, um, you know, because you have to understand that it is, you know, in society, there's this idea about being really effective and efficient with our time. High intensity interval is fantastic. It's great for that high intensity interval training. And that is really what's going to move the needle for insulin sensitivity. You could do that two days a week, uh, see how an individual does. What if you did a longer session at a lower pace, like simply walking? For cardiovascular? Yeah, for your cardiovascular substitute. Um, I consider that as movement. The Drew study would consider that exercise. Again, mm-hmm. this is where the difference between uh, research-based information and then just what I see in clinical practice and what I've seen in my geriatric training Uh, I think walking is acceptable for movement. I do think that focused, some focused cardiovascular activity where you increase your heart rate is beneficial. Um, And I believe that it is beneficial for a multitude of reasons. And uh, yeah, it's really looking at that skeletal muscle and the interplay that it might have on the immune system with lowering white blood cells, the, you know, increase in BDNF, the increase in interleukin six, which is actually seen more during um, cardiovascular activity. So yes, I do believe in that. Now, the other aspect is resistance training and resistance training is what I consider, if I were to rank it, I would say resistance exercise, high intensity interval training, and then cardiovascular. That would be my personal ranking system. Resistance exercise, the more untrained an individual, the less they have to do to get benefits. If they are a beginner, they could get away with 10 sets per week, right? And if it, again, volume is important. So if you're lifting three to four days a week, I think that's a great place to start. I personally lift five days a week. And how many repetitions in each set? Um, so for me, a total of 25 to 30 reps per week per muscle group. No, you said 10 sets a week, but I mean, yeah, that would be for a beginner, 10 sets a week. Yeah. For a beginner within within each set, is it like 10 to 12? Yep. I would say, you know, 12 is a great number. I I think that it is about not going through the motions and it is about fatigue ability, understanding that you do have to, it's called resistance exercise for a reason. And there needs to be a component of effort that I don't see people putting in. People are on their phone. People are doing other things. You should, you do need, it is not, you, people must, the, the listener must hear me when I say, when you go to the gym, if you are doing the same thing that you've always done and you go, I'm great, I'm, I'm putting in the, the time. It is not, it's not just about putting in the time and it's, it has nothing to do with showing up. 
I expect you to show up and I expect you to execute in a way that requires focus and a, a, a way that requires exertion that is intense enough that you are fatigued. Yeah. It's not like, like the classic illustration of that would be going into the gym and seeing someone walking on a treadmill and reading their phone. <laughs> it's right. just like, like walking. It's like this, that's, they're putting in their time. It's not going to work. Right. So I, I, I think it would be helpful too, because there's, there's the devil's in the details, of course. And so I think the focus and really exerting yourself to the point where you're starting to sweat and breathing heavily are good clues that you're doing enough work, but get, can you give us some other guidelines that would let people know they're at least they're getting closer to doing it the right way. Now, again, you, ideally, yeah, I would consider going to, to failure. I would consider yeah. going to failure. I would consider it is about volume. I would consider going to failure. Perceived exertion is really important. You know, um, it is about, you know, there is a mind muscle connection and mm -hmm. really, you yeah, know, why don't you talk you, about that? That's important. Yeah. The, really, the, the mind muscle connection is you can do a lot of movements, but it doesn't mean you're actually targeting the muscle group that you are intending to target, right? Mm -hmm. You can have, you know, if you do a certain exercise, maybe you're going to do squat and perhaps, you know, you compensate in a different way. You, you use your quads more than you use your hamstring or your glute or, you know, but really focusing on the muscle that you are training is extraordinary important is, is of extraordinary importance. You do need to create muscle damage. You do need to change the metabolic homeostasis in your body. You do need to have enough recovery, right? Enough nutrients for recovery, you know, but you do have to tax that muscle. And one way in which you tax the muscle is through effort. Uh, one way that you also tax and understand the effort is, you know, perceived exhaustion. You know, I'm not saying you have to train to, ma you know, maximum exhaustion, but again, this is, if we are thinking about how to really step up and protect ourselves as we age, you know, people are always looking for this external fountain of youth. It's not, it's not something you're going to take in. The fountain of youth truly is within this muscle system as the organ of longevity. That's how people are going to really excel and change the trajectory of the way in which they age. Yeah, I yeah. couldn't agree more. It's, it really is the, the clear focus that I just expressed earlier. It saddens me that so many quote unquote experts don't really appreciate or at least not personally appreciate and apply to their own lifestyle. So it's just saddens me to see that because they don't get it. And how, if the leaders and the teachers aren't applying it, then who's going to teach the people, right? Yeah. I, I, the other thing that I was really thinking about is that when we think about obesity medicine, we're so focused on obesity. We're all, you know, there's all these medications for obesity, but you know, and I understand that any kind of hormone replacement is, is still, you know, it's still not the norm. And I, I think that that's interesting. I think that it's interesting that uh, big pharmaceuticals are okay pushing uh, obesity drugs, but what about- well, There's nothing new there. They've been- You know, it's just, it's just interesting when you think about how broken the system is, we do focus on, we have a whole medicine well, on obesity, it's, whole medical it's, field. It's broken by design. They broke it over a century ago with the yeah. Flexner report in 1910. So that's 112 years that it was yeah. been busted when Rockefeller got in there in Carnegie. So, and it's been downhill ever since and it's gotten worse. And the last two years, it's just exponentially worse. And so 
but that's a whole separate discussion. Yeah. So I want to get back into the specifics because one of the reasons that I think I was able to gain muscle weight was by applying a strategy I suspect you're familiar with, but I don't know that the details, we never, never discussed it previously is blood flow restriction training. Yes. Uh, and I, and I used the Katsu, which was the original mm-hmm. developer of the concept. There were a lot of other ways to do it. And you could do inexpensive ones. Katsu is like a thousand dollars, but for the benefits that it has, it's just amazing. And, I, and I'm particularly intrigued with it for the population we're discussing the geriatrics, because you're essentially one of the risk of resistance training is that you're going to get injured, as we discussed earlier. Yes. And with Katsu or blood flow restriction, you're using 70% less weight, 70% and getting the same benefits. So you almost eliminate the likelihood of getting injured. So I'm wondering if you could share your experience with yeah, this. blood. So my um my husband is a Navy SEAL and I take care of a lot of special operators. Mm-hmm. One of the tactics that they have been using for an extremely long time post-injury is blood flow restriction. And blood flow restriction is exactly what you mentioned. It is a way to get the same, the same stimulus. The body will recognize the same stimulus, growth factors, uh, cell turnover as you would if you were lifting heavier weights. And uh, it can be very valuable, especially when you are just starting out. Again, do it with a professional. You don't want to, uh, well, you know, like injure yourself in that way. But yes, very, very helpful. And you know, something else is interesting is stim suits. The electro stim suits, I believe, are going to be the next thing. The big, yeah, the, but that's the a lot more expensive and a lot more expensive. Yeah, yeah. There's, yeah. There's some benefit to those, especially if you're injured or you yeah. need some rehabilitation. But, but the katsu or, you know, the, the blood flow restriction generically, I think, is so profoundly effective. Very, very and, effective. And, and especially limiting injuries. You know, that's the key because mm-hmm. if you get injured, you're, you're, you may and essentially could potentially kill you. And I'll tell you why, because if you're injured, you're going to be negatively motivated to ever participate in exercise again, which is essentially dex, the death sentence. You right. stop exercising, you are going to knock at least 10, 20, 30 years off your lifespan. No oh, doubt in my mind. It's true. And it's interesting because the effect of exercise is both acute, meaning from that bout of exercise and also chronic, it changes your, it changes your DNA. Mm -hmm. The, the impact of exercise is above and beyond what we realize right now. Um, it, it just is, it's profound. You know, I, if, if you permit me, I do want to mention something about uh, protein, which I believe is very important. Mm -hmm. Okay. I mentioned high quality protein and high quality protein. I consider to be animal-based proteins. Mm -hmm. That's not to say if you are an individual who is vegan or vegetarian, that you cannot get the same amount of protein you can, uh, but that would require either additional supplementation, like a scoop of branch chain amino acids, increasing your essential amino acids. But one has to understand that 30 grams of protein from hemp is different than 30 grams of protein from say a chicken breast. And in fact, uh, as you age, it becomes really important to realize that if you are going to try to get your proteins from say quinoa, you know, people say quinoa is, you know, high in protein, it would take six cups of quinoa to get the equivalent of one cup of, you know, one three ounce chicken breast. So if you are listening to this, I, I really want you to take to heart that you focus on high quality proteins. And if you are vegan or vegetarian, that you are then supplementing, uh, with a something, you know, branch chain or essential amino acid in addition to your meal. 
Yeah, there are protein powders that will allow you to do that, but it, yep. protein powders are processed foods. Uh, and ideally you would like to get it from real food. And I'm a firm believer with, as, as you are obviously in mm -hmm. getting it from animal foods, because there's so many other micronutrients in there that you just, I agree. You just cannot get in that world. <laughs> like, like so, creatine and bioavailable creatine iron. And carnitine and yep. carnosine. Yes. You know, these are, these are all things that are not available in plants. Right. So, um, I want to, as long as we're on the, so I th thank you for making the point because it's an important one. It really is. And, I just and don't want to, I, I really um, want people to have great takeaways from this interview that serves yeah, yeah. them. And then in, in an effort to help you understand what, how much protein am I eating? Well, you can guess, and you gave a simple recommendation, but ideally you want to enter, and some people have a stronger version of this, but there's no other way than to use a nutrient uh analytical so my favorite i think yours is too is chronometer yes and uh it's the best of the bunch out there and you can if you use it on desktop you can get it for free yeah. and it can tell you if you're at, if you're careful in entering your information accurately to the 10th of a gram how much exactly how many it's amazing it's getting. amazing you don't have to guess you do not have to guess and it allows you to make really good decisions, not just on your macronutrient decisions, but also on your micronutrients for things like iron, um, zinc, the really important nutrients that help with process and regulation above Absolutely. and beyond macros. Yeah. 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 So I, I'm a big fan of chronometer. So, but I, what I wanted to talk about a bit, at least touch on it, because I mean, obesity is apparently one of the things that you focus on through you know, basically uh, strategies to increase their muscle mass. But I think in addition to the protein, it's in my journey, I've learned that the choice of the fats in your diet is, is essentially every bit as important. And, and in terms of longevity, maybe even more important. Because if you're, the, it is just shocking. And I'm not sure if you looked at the literature, I'm sure generally you're familiar with that, that avoiding seed oils or vegetable oils is just the one, of, it is in my view, the worst thing you could possibly do from a diet perspective, because it's, it clearly is unequivocally a metabolic poison. And if you, you need some omega-3 fats, omega-6 fats rather, but if you're eating food, any food, you're going to get more. And, and, I, and the reason I bring that up is you had mentioned chicken as a protein source. And if chicken happens to be particularly mm. offensive, not offensive, but a, a culprit in this, this really high in these omega-6 fats. Mm. So if you're eating high amounts of chicken, a white chicken, interestingly, is the one that was promoted on a low-fat diet. It happens to be better because it's lower in fat. So it has less linoleic acid. So dark meat, you know, if the chickens were eating real food, it would be okay, but they're not. They're all fed grains and grains are really high in this omega-6 fat. They're like 20, 25% linoleic acid. And when you get too much linoleic acid, and generally the average person has 10 to 20 times as much linoleic acid in their fat tissues and body cell membranes than they than it was available like 150 years ago, like in 18, late yeah. 18. I mean, I, th I think the, the, the issue becomes this balance of omega-6 to omega-3s and we're just seeing- It's not just a balance, it's, it's absolute quantities too. You, yeah. can't, you, can't, you can't cure high omega-6 by adding more omega-3s. No, 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 no. And I think that they're- That'll make it worse. Right. And, you know, I think processed trans fats are really, really horrible for individuals. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think re-regulating that balance is very important. 
And yeah, so it boils safe. down to processed foods. Because if, you, if you're having processed mm-hmm. foods, they're almost all going to have this high omega-6. They put these canola yeah. oils, corn oil, safflower, sunflower, and it's just loaded. And they do it because it's cheap. It, and it's, you know, they're able to sell you something that tastes good and, and mm-hmm. will essentially kill you prematurely. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, calorie control is also, you know, a massive issue. These foods are very, very highly palatable. Yeah, for sure. But uh, while we're on calories, if you, if you are underweight, which is obviously the minority of people in the country, but if you are underweight or have less muscle mass than you need, you're going to have to increase your calorie intake. Yeah. By 10 to 15%. Yeah. 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 So, uh, You know, it's interesting when you prioritize for protein, that calories can come that 10 to 15 calories can come from carbohydrates or fats. Doesn't necessarily need to come from protein. As long as you're getting your minimum protein. Yep. And I I think that that is, is valuable to understand. You know, one of the things that I do see is that people who yo-yo diet Mm -hmm. and really go through massive calorie restriction end up slowing down their metabolism and they are having to maintain their nutrition on 800 calories a day. Mm-hmm. If you are that individual, then a really good strategy would be to do a very slow refeed. So understanding, so chronometer, understanding what your baseline maintenance calories are, and then just going up, you know, you could go up 5% or 10% and just watch. And, you know, whether you choose that uh, percent surplus in protein, it's a long-term strategy for metabolic correction to slowly increase, you know, keep stable at those high, at that higher calorie for a month or so. Um, but again, it's probably not most people, but there are people out there. And I'm sure one of your listeners is an individual who has chronically dieted, lost a lot of muscle in this cyclical dieting. And now we are challenging them to increase their food intake and put on muscle. And I will say it's very difficult to store protein as fat. Uh, protein is not a, a highly stored nutrients. Right. It's utilized, right? And also there's a thermic effect of feeding. There are a lot of positives. It increases satiation. There are a lot of positives for prioritizing protein for individuals who are even looking to increase their calorie consumption. Yeah, for sure. So um, maybe if you can share some of your best Things that you've learned along your journey of helping guide people to the in the process of increasing their muscle mass. And, and before before that, though, what what how successful have you been? Uh, do are most people come to see you able to achieve this goal, or do you find that a lot of people have to give up for whatever reason? No, I mean I will be frank with you. We are. Um, patient were either a referral or application process only at this. Oh, uh, so you're point, selective. That's the key. That is the at key. this point in my career. It is really, we only take on individuals in my practice who are ready to level up. I mean, I am not looking for average. If people that are willing to settle for average health, I'm looking for extraordinary results yeah. and I will stop at nothing to get that done for individuals. And they better be bringing the same. Uh, so you ask me how successful I am. You yeah. can read my Google reviews. Um, but uh, well, I'm just curious what your yeah. experience is, because that's the key. Actually, I, I wanted having to do that too. I wanted up firing like 75% of my patients. Yeah. Um, because, most you know, of the I, patients I have not had, I, I can't really think of off the top of my head, 
Uh, most patients come to me because they want to be optimized. They're very keen on this idea of what it's going to look like in terms of being able to perform. A lot of my patients are uh, individuals that really want to go out and change the world. And we know that the one thing that is going to cap their ability to change the world is their health. Mm-hmm. Whether it is they are not strong enough, whether they don't have enough energy, whether their hormones are out of balance, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. The individuals that come to me, once we get them on a plan and, you know, if you correct whatever is missing and you answer the question, the real question, then the execution part is the easy part, but results should happen within a month, whatever it is, we should start to see improvements within a month. If I don't, then we're working under the wrong question or the wrong paradigm of thinking. Hmm. Well, that's pretty good. It's encouraging. And it actually is very gratifying too, because it's, it really fulfills your need of why you went into medicine to begin with. You want to help people. And, That's and true. if you are working with people who aren't willing to, to do the work it takes to be helped, then you better, you know, triage and find someone who is. Yeah. And my patients do really well. You know, we do focus on recovery as well. Correct. Mm-hmm. And prioritize nutrition is key. You know, hormone balance is very important in muscle sleep for recovery and blood sugar regulation. I cannot tell you how many young fit guys I have with sleep apnea. Hmm. Wow. So let's get into the recovery. So why don't you outline an ideal regimen for someone who's relatively healthy and uninjured uh, of the amount of time and resistance training frequency and days of the week? Do you think... you know, I think I that's think, a really, I get what you're saying. I think it's a very hard question. To okay, so it has start. to be individual. It has to be customized. One of the things that I would think about in terms of recovery, um, you know, I know that people use wearables and they look at mm-hmm. heart rate variability. I don't. And the reason I don't is because if an individual is required to perform on that day, or if an individual is required to deploy or do something, and they are now looking at their, you know, heart rate variability, I think it can really psych them out. So I am going to just say that in terms of recovery, they should be able to go back and still be able to improve their lifts. If an individual is under recovered, sometimes they're getting sick or they're just, Mm -hmm. they're starting to, um, have sleep changes and hunger changes and increased fatigue, then you have to readjust. I would say, however, the majority of people are not training hard enough where recovery is an issue. That's interesting. That's an interesting, and in your clinical experience. Yes. That's what you're seeing. Yes. Okay. I mean, that being said, I take off, I take one day a week, me personally, I take one day a week off. I train very heavy. So I do heavy resistance training. I train uh, compound movements three days a week, heavy legs. The other two days I do three um, days a week. You're doing legs, heavy, heavy legs. Yes. Like, like deadlifts and squats, deadlifts, squats. Yes. Heavy, very heavy. Oh my gosh. This, that, that sounds like it's excessive, man. <laughs> it's like, man. I mean, well, I did have a baby a year week ago. So. For those, man. Huh? Those, those are, those are the worst days of the week. Or leg, <laughs> leg days. I know I, I'm a very uh, glutton for punishment. I'm doing it three days a week, but I'm smart. I hired someone I would never do it by myself. Are you kidding? I start bitching about it the night before every night. Yeah. So I've hired someone that's going to meet me there at 645. We're going to go. Um, so three days a week. And then I'll do like today. I did heavy legs. I think I could have worked harder. I will probably hit some intervals on an Airdyne bike later. 
right? Mm -hmm. So we'll do our interview. I have a few other interviews and things to do and then take care of something for the practice. I'll do 20 minutes of high intensity intervals. I'll completely cash myself and then I'll go pick up my daughter. Now tomorrow I'll do a longer, I'll do a upper body lift, which will not be as heavy. And mm -hmm. I will do some kind of cardiovascular activity. Mm, interesting. See, that's the beauty of getting back to blood flow restriction training because it's because it's such a low weight, not only does it decrease your risk of injury, but it, it, it actually doesn't really push you to the point where you, you need, need is, is much of a need of recovery. That's true. That's yeah. true. So, yeah. I mean, it's, let's it's low restriction. I, I think you are on top of it. And I think that that is going to be one of the things of the future that we have not routinely implemented. Yeah. It's just, it's and again, just, I think the reason is because there isn't an interface of medicine. There's a performance and then health and well, you know, health and medical optimization is over here. We don't, mm -hmm. we're, there's no interface. Do you use it at all yourself? Just I don't, okay. I don't, but again, I, I don't because I haven't needed to yet. Knock on wood. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's actually useful for recovery too. Like after a hard workout, I mean, the, uh, you could use the bands with, especially with the Katsu, they had this version of it that's called the cycling so it goes off it pressurizes for 20 seconds or so then it releases and it gets progressively more and more pressure and like eight times and repeat you can repeat those sets so you can do like 30 minutes of where you're just like essentially passively massaging your muscle with the blood mm -hmm. flow restriction and, and, and it could speed up it help get the waste products out i, I think on, that your, that on your on your heavy leg days <laughs> <laughs> i think that's something very interesting to think about um, yeah. And then the other thing too, I don't know if you get DOMS or delayed onset muscle soreness too much, but have you, have you explored the use of uh, red light therapy? I, I have. Yeah. I actually, oh. there's a, a company I absolutely love. I don't know if you've heard of them cozy. Um, and yes, we do red light therapy almost every day. Yeah. So do you, but do you do it after you train to prevent DOMS? Um, no, because I, right. So, um, no, but that's a great strategy. That means I'm going to have to wake up at four 30 to make sure that I'm there earlier so that I can make sure I can <laughs> red light after might really affect my recovery, but I'll try it. Oh, geez. No, well, it, it, I don't know about you, but when I, many days, my trainer pushes me hard enough that I, it's hard to walk the next day. So, but I can, I've, I've noticed that I can obliterate that, that response by just within the, within the first hour post-training especially like lunges, if you're doing lunges, heavy lunges, mm -hmm. you know, that is what usually causes it. Uh, then you do, you do it right in the, on your hamstrings and that for five, all it takes is five minutes. If you do it within the first hour, you mm. can usually abort it, which is really yeah. great. That's interesting. Maybe I, uh, maybe I should throw that in. Well, if you've got oh, the equipment, it's crazy not to. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, a, I think these are all great strategies, especially if you're prioritizing the things that are very important, like training and dietary protein and really shifting the understanding that, you know, skeletal muscle is the organ of longevity. And, um, I am so grateful that you recognize that because as you can imagine, it is quite an uphill battle because I am not talking about it from this fitness perspective. While it's important, it really is this fountain of youth. It really does protect against obesity, Alzheimer's, you name it, autoimmune disease, autoimmune diseases, there's rheumatic autoimmune diseases, just all kinds of things that are regulated by contracting skeletal healthy muscle. Yes. And along with optimizing the diet, the combination is, is essentially, yes. it's almost a miracle. Really. If you, if you give the body what it needs, it's going to respond and you don't need all to take all these 
dangerous medications that kill you prematurely. Less is more. Less is more in general. Less is more. Yeah. Well, this is so. Is there any other messages you'd like to share? Points to cover that we missed. Um, I, one thing that I think is interesting is there, and I'm just going to throw this out here. This doesn't have to be focal point, but this idea about glutamine and mm -hmm. glutamine is a non-essential amino acid, which means the body can generate it. The primary, and it feeds, um, you know, it's important for cells of the immune system. It's, it produces nutrients for them. It is an energy source for enterocytes. It's an energy source for liver and kidney, all these things. Um, the way in which you generate glutamine, it is super critical, is through contracting skeletal muscle. Interesting. Interesting. And that was one of the first interfaces that people understood the interface between glutamine and uh, in the immune cells, wow. like lymphocytes, in terms of utilizing, you know, the white blood cells use glutamine as energy and fuel. So that just amazing, amazing fact yeah. is this interface between the two. So it's a non-essential amino acid. So it's a non-essential amino acid. In calories, you can, body can make it. So and it makes it from contracting skeletal muscle. That and that's what goes and feeds the immune system. So your, what, one of your, your godmother, I believe is Liz. Liz, Liz Lipsky. Yeah. Uh -huh. And she was a new, uh, nutritionist that focused on gut health. So did she recommend high glutamines as a supplement? I think she did. She? Um, she, I'm sure did one needs to understand that glutamine doesn't it really get into the bloodstream. It's utilized mostly by the enterocytes. Mm -hmm. One way to consider increasing glutamine would be, and listen, I haven't seen the data to support this, but mechanistically it makes sense is increasing mm -hmm. branched chain amino acids. Because mm. branch chain amino acids will either then go to, you know, alanine or glutamine. So that yeah, may be yeah. one way, but, or how about this? Just train harder, contract your skeletal muscle, increase the amount of glutamine that you are generating and you interface with the immune system. Yeah. And it, it so has anti-inflammatory effects. You can get branch chain amino acid supplements or you can just increase your meat. Because <laughs> like, That's right. I'm up, I'm up totally. to almost pound, three quarters of a pound of meat a day, uh, which when I don't need to take any protein supplements, I mean, it's, there's more than enough in the food. Yes. Yes. So amazing. Yeah. That, that what are your thoughts have. on creatine? Do you ever have people add creatine? To I, I'm a big believer in creatine. Mm -hmm. I unfortunately made the mistake of seeing a non-biologic dentist like 30 years ago and he removed all the mercury fillings I had because my parents, oh, they loved me dearly. They fed me processed foods and, and spades and lots, lots of desserts. And I had half of my mouth was full of mercury fillings when I was wow. in high school. So I had it all removed and it came out in the wrong way and it damaged my kidneys. So creatine mm. is, can convert it, converts to creatinine. And I, I think it's, I don't know that it's dangerous in higher amounts, but you know, when your creatinine goes up to one, five or one, six, when you're taking creatine, you know, I get a little nervous. So I, I, I don't do it personally, but I'm, mm -hmm. I'm absolutely convinced it's one of the safest yeah. uh, supplements that you can take generally. It, for agree. me, it's just, I'm just a little nervous because I, yeah. you know, I just, I don't like dialysis. And, and one way uh, individuals could even go a step further is looking at their cystatin C. So you can do a oh, yeah, yeah. corrected right. GFR ratio. Um, yeah. so, but what do you use creatine? Um, I am not using it right at the moment. My diet is very high in red meat, but I do recommend it all the time. Yeah. So I'm getting enough from my red meat. I'm sure. So. Yeah. Most yeah, likely. That's, yeah. the, that's the beautiful thing. <laughs> when you're 
all the the carn supplements, carnitine, carnosine, mm-hmm. creatine. So they're all in uh, in red meat, and you don't have to take a supplement for it. So and then B twelve and all the other things. So you yes, you, you touched on it earlier. You can get healthy and get results being a vegetarian or vegan even, but it's really much much harder. It's just much harder. Challenge. Yeah. Well, you 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 you're doing a great. So any any other points before we uh, other than the glutamine pearl? No, I by the muscle contraction. Yeah, I I I think that we have covered really important points for your listener mm-hmm. that they can go ahead and take away and implement. Yeah, yeah. Well, I hope that you've inspired and catalyzed them and given some uh, hope to in, engage in this type of process because there's. I mean, we're both convinced there's really very few things you can do that is as important as starting one of these programs to increase right. your muscle mass. It is just essential. You, yeah. you, you can choose not to, but you're, you're ultimately, you're going to pay the price. And, you will. Sarcopenia and again, and that gap is not fun is when you get older. That, price, just, that gap closes. And it's really yeah. the only, the older you, know, you get, the harder it is. You can right. still do it, but it just becomes increasingly progressively more difficult to implement. Yes, that That's is, why, that is accurate. The day to start is today <laughs> and find someone who's knowledgeable. I mean, you yeah. can do this yourself. There's a lot of great YouTube videos, especially on lifting weights and resistance training, and you can theoretically learn it from it, but ideally you want someone to look at your form and give you good advice and really mm-hmm. walk you through it. I mean, obviously there's a cost to that, but there's a cost to being frail too. So yeah. yeah. And that payout's no fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So thanks for what you're doing. It's just so encouraging. I guess one other question I have for you. How many other doctors in your experience are there like you that focuses on muscle-centric medicine? Um, um, None in the way that I do it, which Mm -hmm. is why I started the Institute for Muscle-Centric Medicine, because I'm hoping to train up other physicians in this way. And what, what do you think the biggest distinction is the way you do it, where the other people who are using some type of uh, muscle building strategies. But what is the difference that you bring to bring this? Well, number one, my training, right? I was Mm -hmm. trained and am continued to be mentored by one of the world leading protein experts and um, just unique experience as a trained geriatrician, seven years of professional nutrition training and a trained geriatrician, which means I do work in the arena and have worked in the arena. And that is incredibly unique. That's a no, quite an experience. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're doing it and uh, helping people get better. And there's going to be more, there's going to be more docs like me. We're going yeah, they're, they're to, when people hear obesity medicine, they are going to counter that with muscle centric medicine. <laughs> well, it's a good strategy. So if people want to find more about what you're doing, how would they be able to do that? Well, on my YouTube, which is the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, I do a lot of education, spend a lot of time teaching and educating there. Also, I have a weekly newsletter that has new papers that I'm reading and a nice summary. You can find a, sign up for my free newsletter. And um, on Instagram, I'm very active. I also will have a book come out. Uh, my book will be out in a year. So <laughs> get ready for it. And it is right. going well, to you'll change have to send the conversation. Me, you'll have to send me a copy and we can I have will. another uh, uh, interview on that one. That would be, be great. Yeah, we can, because I'm sure it would be, because people need this information. So, thank All you right. so well, much. You're most welcome. Thank you.